We're in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Uh, Verses 11 and 13 will be the only two verses we look at. Uh, My name is Randy Armstrong. I've been a member. Betty and I have been attending here at Creekside for about three years. Uh, Steve and Rachel are on vacation this week. They're out of town. And he asked me to conclude this series on the Lord's Prayer. And we're looking at prayer as reliance and dependence upon the Lord and Jesus. And what we see in the second half of this prayer that he's teaching his disciples is he's encouraging us in our prayers to acknowledge how dependent we are on our Father. Now, depending on someone else isn't a very popular idea in our day. I was reading a 2019 article written for NPR Music this week, and starts out this way. It's hard to imagine two occasions more different than the inaugural ball for President Trump and the funeral for murdered rapper Nipsey Hussle but they have at least one thing in common. The same song was played at both. It's a song that has come to represent a particular idea of American individualism, and in some ways feels even more relevant today than when it was first recorded in 1968. In a poll of funeral directors, it's the most frequently played song at funerals. Do you know what song it is? I did it my way. The article calls it America's Anthem of Self-Determination and includes by giving a few lines of the song and then asking a question. The song says, I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. And then the article asks the question, what sentiment could be more American than that? Independence is extremely highly valued in our society. Ashley Fern, I have no clue who she is, but this is what she said. At the end of the day, you only have yourself to fall back on, so it's exceedingly important to be able to handle things on your own. It's all about being secure with who you are and what you believe in. It's extremely empowering knowing that you're in control of your own life and your choices. And then poet Maya Angelou says this, Independence is a heady draft. And if you drink it in your youth, it can have the same effect on the brain as young wine does. It doesn't matter that its taste is not always appealing. It is addictive. And with each drink, you want more. There's two elements to this idea of independence. And if you look up in the dictionary, there's at least two. Some of them have up to five. I think Webster's got five. But there's two main things when we talk about independence. First has to do with authority. If you're independent, you're free from outside control. You're not depending on anybody else's authority. And if you're independent, it also has to do with resources. You're self-sufficient. You're not depending on another for what you need. Freedom from control, and you're not depending on anybody else for what you need. And this attitude of independence, it's part of the American ethos. Yet when we look at how Jesus taught his disciples to pray... It's striking how different his teaching is from the current emphasis in our society on personal independence and self-determination. We've been going through this prayer for several weeks, and we've seen that in the first part of the prayer, Jesus focuses on the Father, his honor, his name, his kingdom, his will, 
his agenda. That's how he teaches them to start their prayer. So instead of being free from outside control, not depending on somebody else's authority, Jesus teaches his followers, and by extension, us today, to embrace the Father's control and submit to his authority and to reaffirm his authority as we pray. We start our prayers by acknowledging he's God and we're not. His agenda needs to be accomplished and not ours. That's how we start. And in the second half of Jesus' prayer, in this sort of template that he gives us, we're not meant to pray rotely, but the subjects that he addresses are the subjects we can meditate on and lift before the Father. In the second half, he encourages his followers, father, his followers to rely on the Father's sufficiency, his ability to provide everything that they need. So instead of not depending on somebody else for what we need, we find Jesus instructing us to ask the Father for everything that we need. And we're going to look at two of those areas today. Mark already spoke about forgiveness, which is found in verse 12. But I'm going to look this morning, Lord willing, at God's provision for our temporal needs in this life, and then God's protection, protecting us from our spiritual vulnerability. Now, this approach to prayer that Jesus gave his disciples really shouldn't surprise us given what Jesus says about his own relationship as the perfect God-man, his own relationship to the Father. In his prayer, what he's teaching his followers to do is to express what's in their hearts. And he's expressing in this prayer his own embracing of, of the Father's authority and dependence on the Father's resources. A couple months ago, as we were going through the book of John in chapter 5 of, of John, we see probably the best or the most essential or foundational expression of Jesus' disposition as a human being. The perfect human being says this, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Why? Because I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the perfect man that we sang about this morning, who lived an absolutely perfect life of total dependence, he was never independent of the Father as a human being, totally reliant on the Father, lived his whole life in obedience to the Father, was obedient to the point of giving up his own life. For him, death was preferable to disobedience. Meditate on that. Think about that for yourself. This is the one who gave up his life. And because he lived this way, he was able to take your independence and my independence and my self-will and take all of that sin upon himself and pay the eternal price for us so that we can enter into God's presence clothed in his righteousness and not standing before God on our own merit. We sang about this this morning but I want us to see that our prayer should be a reflection of that righteousness that we have been given in the Lord Jesus Christ if we've put our faith in him. Now, these personal requests we're going to look at today follow these, uh, the initial petitions in the Lord's Prayer for God's glory, that his will be done, that his name be honored, that his kingdom come. And it's always in that context that you and I should lift up our requests to the Father. It gives us perspective, because if you and I focus on, just on us, 
and we get ingrown just on what we feel and what we, we're experiencing. And those things are so real and so powerful sometimes that if we're not careful, we get so myopic and so short-sighted that we pray outside of the context of the eternal kingdom of God that he's working out for his glory and for our good. And we just get locked into the temporal, the now, and we lose sight of, and we lose perspective in our prayer life. And so this is why the Lord, I think the Lord told his disciples, start out with the kingdom of God, with the glory of God, with his honor, and then focus in on your needs. So this morning we're going to look at two of them. Long introduction, I know, but I wanted to give us the perspective for what what we're looking at when we talk about God's provision for us. So if you'll stand with me, I'd like to read from Matthew chapter 6. I'll begin reading in verse 7 and go through verse 13. We'll focus on verses 11 and 13 in the teaching, but I want to read the context here. Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is God's word to us this morning. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, may your word penetrate our hearts. May you give us each one what we need today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Give. God wants us to ask. Well, our missional community is reading through a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's an extremely, I don't like the way he writes it. It's hard to follow from a linear thinker like myself, but I found it extremely inspirational and encouraging in terms of the intensity of, of my own prayer life. But one thing he says in that book is all of Jesus' teaching on prayer in the Gospels can be summarized with one word, Ask. God wants us to ask. Now, when we read this morning in verse um, 8, Jesus tells the disciples, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So it's not a question of God needing to be informed about things he doesn't know about. So if he already knows, why does Jesus teach us to ask? And I think it is because we need to learn to recognize that he's our source in everything. We need to learn to ask. And uh, so give us this day our daily bread. It's not a demand. We're not demanding that God give us what we want or what we think we need. But it's an expression of our independence. And whether we're asking him for what we need or thanking him for what he's already provided for us each day, God's glorified when we recognize just how dependent we really are on him. I don't know if you've noticed, or maybe it's not the same for you, but I find my prayer life intensifies when my awareness of my inadequacies increase. Have you noticed that? When, when you finally become aware there's a situation you can't handle, then maybe your prayer life moves up a couple levels. I don't know about you. And we live, it's kind of dangerous, the society in which we live, because we have so much. And we are so blessed, and I've mentioned this before, and I don't want to sound like a broken record, but 
in the entire course of human history. We've, we're living in the best time ever. Most of us live better than the kings lived in the Middle Ages. We don't know what it is to really have deep, persistent needs in our lives. And so we need to be encouraged and reminded again that even if we do have the bread and the other stuff in the cupboard and in the fridge and in the freezer and all the other things, that we, are, we, we recognize and we remind ourselves that those all come from him. And the events globally in the last three or four years have kind of awakened us to the fact that things are probably a lot more tenuous than we realize. The fertilizer crisis globally, I mean, if you're not into that, don't worry about it. But there's a lot of nations now who don't have enough fertilizer to grow the crops that they need to grow. And in the next 48 months, we're going to see widespread hunger as a result of that and the crisis in Ukraine with the bombing of all the grain that is usually feeds Africa that's being locked up and destroyed. I mean, if God takes his hand off of things, things get bad in a hurry. You know, churches in the Midwest and in the agricultural areas of the United States back in the day used to have a fall prayer meeting for the crops where they would all come together and they'd spend an evening just asking the Lord for good weather and absence of pestilence and all of the things that could go wrong with their crops because they realized how dependent they were on their creator for what they needed day in and day out. So asking God for what we need, or in our case often at the, in this day and age, thanking him for what we already have is just simply a discipline that we do to recognize that he is our source. Even though we might be getting a paycheck, how do we have the strength to get the job? How did you get the brains you need to do the job? How, how, do we, how is it that we live in such a, a safe country so that there's social peace, more or less, so that you can go to get your job and you can go to the store and get what you need. All these things are gifts from God. And Jesus tells his followers in that day, give us this day our daily bread. In our day, it's probably more thank you, Lord, for giving us our daily bread. There was only one time in our 53 years of marriage, tomorrow's our anniversary, there was only one time in our 53 years of marriage... <laughs> testimony to my wife's perseverance. But <laughs> there's only one time where we had to eat the legs off the couch, but I won't tell you that story. If you want to know the story, I can tell you about it sometime outside the sermon where we got down pretty low. Baby food pancakes for breakfast, and it was quite interesting. Anyway, but we asked, and he wants us to ask. And what are we asking for? We're asking for our daily bread. Bread uh, implies more than simply bread, but it's the basic necessities of life. It's all things necessary to continue living. We express to God when we ask that. Um, we express our dependence upon Him. Hopefully we express our gratitude. And we also express our contentment in asking for our daily bread. We don't ask for our daily steak or our daily cake. And uh, Francis Chan said in his sermon on on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I think there's a lot of you that would probably be pretty ticked off if all God gave you was bread. You know, we want more. We want bread and a lot more. We want a lot more things than we need. But this expression that Jesus is teaching us to pray, I think is, it's not 
really obvious and probably wasn't as big a deal in that society where these people were wondering sometimes where they were going to find their next meal. But it's this expression of contentment with the basic necessities of life. Now, it's okay to pray for other things. We should ask God for everything and trust him to tell us no when that's not good for us. But basically, our heart when we come to the Lord is not to look at him as some celestial Amazon where we just order everything we want and it, it's delivered. But it's, it's just this contentment, Lord, what I need are the basics. Give me the basics. I'm content with the basics. And notice this, the frequency of this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a daily recognition of our dependence on the Lord. We don't come to him once a month and say, Lord, give me what I need for next month, and then we can go off and forget him for 30 days and then come back the next time. But it's, it's a discipline to recognize every morning our daily need that he provides in the area of material necessities. Kind of reminds us of number 16 and the story of the children of Israel in the wilderness where every morning they had to go out and collect the food. 40 years every day, they went out and collected what God had provided them for them for that day. And even if we have all we need today, and you might th feel funny in the morning praying, Lord, give us this day our daily bread when your cupboards are full and your pantry's stuffed and your fridge is full. But there's just this recognition that nothing is guaranteed to continue. Kevin DeYoung, in his book on the Lord's Prayer, I recommend it, um, very good basic teaching on the Lord's Prayer, tells the story of a, a man who had most of his fortune wrapped up in Enron, and if you're old enough, that name, you know what that is, what's coming here. But he said, he told the Lord, Lord, if, if I have more than I need or than is good, good for me, Lord, when you need to take it away from me, take it from me. And he was telling DeYoung that he feels like that's something the Lord did when the Enron collapsed because most of his funds were there because he had more than was good for him, apparently. And so he just embraced the fact that nothing was guaranteed in the future. And we should come to the Lord every morning recognizing that he is our supply, that he is our source, that the way we're living right now may not continue. And we're not terrified or anxious or worried, but we're just acknowledging again that he is our source. This is a little bit of a detour, but I, I wonder if our affluence, and especially our credit cards and our lines of credit, have kind of deadened any sense of daily dependence we might have on the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm just aware that I really am never at this point in my life, and we're not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but I've got a card in my pocket that has a big enough credit limit that for the basic necessities of life, I can just go to Safeway and get the cart filled up. And so I think it's really important for us in our society, especially, to force ourselves, to discipline ourselves, to daily acknowledge that we're dependent upon him. I'm not... I'm not criticizing lines of credit or credit cards. I mean, that's a whole other subject. But I'm just thinking of the things in our lives that we have that deaden us spiritually sometimes. And we need to be alert to that and aware of that so that we don't fall into the habit of just becoming complacent and forgetting that God is our source. Now, one more thing in verse 11 here. I want you to notice, and Jake brought this out when he started this whole series on the Lord's Prayer, but the number of times 
us is in this prayer. It's not give me, it's give us. There's a collective, there's a corporate aspect to these prayers that I think we need to pay attention to. I'd like to call it compassionate solidarity. I know that word can be political, but it's not political. I looked for synonyms. I couldn't find any that were better. But it's this idea that you, my brothers and sisters, we are in this together. We are in this seeking the kingdom of God and glorifying the name of God. We're in this together. And so when I pray or when you pray, give us this day our daily bread, I'm not just praying for Betty and me and my house. I'm praying for you in your need as well. And not just you here at Creekside, but if, if, may the Lord enlarge our vision, but we are praying that God would provide for his people throughout the world every day if we're really praying this prayer in the sense that it's intended. And it's kind of interesting. I was thinking, you you know, this is how he taught the disciples to pray, and they're praying this, give us this day our daily bread, this collective, corporate, compassionate solidarity. And then you go to the book of Acts, and, and the Holy Spirit falls on the church, and Peter gets up and preaches, and thousands are coming to Christ. And then what do we read in the, in, in the book of Acts? It, there were no needy among them, because those who had brought what they had, and those who didn't have got what the others had, and it was like the fulfillment of this give us this day our daily bread was being lived out prophetically, ta- uh, actually visibly in the church because we were praying that God would supply and then we were acting. And I wonder if we would get a hold of that in our prayers that this give us this day our daily bread is bigger than ourselves. I wonder what would happen to the way we look at our resources in the body of Christ. <laughs> We'll come back to this us later. On to verse 13. Uh, Mark talked, preached on this on the 13th, on the forgiveness in verse 12. So we have three basic needs. We need provision for our temporal needs. We need pardon for our moral failures, and Mark preached on that. And then we need protection in the spiritual realm. And so verse 13 deals with the spiritual realm. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Now Jesus told his disciples toward the end of his ministry when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane there, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we talk about temptation, those are the spiritual dangers both outside us and within us. There's really three ways that this word is used in the the New Testament. Sometimes it's called temptation. Sometimes it's called trials. Sometimes it's called testing. But it's trials or suffering that might tempt us to doubt God. It's enticement to sin that are outside of us. We each have those things in our lives. For some of us, it's food. For some of us, it's physical, physical people and money and all these other things, things that are outside us that entice us to sin. And then there's the internal desires that rise up within us that don't seem to need any external stimulation to run rampant in us. And Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray to the Father, lead us not into temptation. Now, God doesn't tempt. James is very clear on that in James 
epistle. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God will never say, come on, do the wrong thing. You can be sure of that. But the scriptures are also clear, as in Psalm 11, and even James in the first chapter of his epistle when he says this about God not tempting, tells us to rejoice in trials because they test our faith. The word is identical. It's the same word for temptation and trial. So they are good for us. And yet Jesus says, pray, don't lead us into temptation. What's going on there? What's the dissonance there? Because if we're supposed to rejoice when trials come, because it tests our faith and develops perseverance and it's good for us. And they are good for us. If God lets them into our lives, they are accomplishing something that we may not appreciate until we get to glory and look back and say, wow, boy, am I glad that happened for me. So why does Jesus say, lead us not into temptation? I think it's, it's the cry of a heart. Now, Jesus didn't have that issue but it's the cry of a human heart that recognizes its own inadequacy. That recognizes it doesn't want to dishonor God by sinning against him, but is aware that there are certain things in life, if brought close enough and brought intensely enough, we could end up dishonoring the name of the Lord. We could end up not advancing his kingdom. We could end up profaning his name. And so it's just an honesty that we don't want to fail. Lord, don't bring anything into my life that would get me so close to failure that I might sin. It, now notice it's not saying, Lord, make us strong in the face of temptation. And that's okay. God sorts through your prayers. Pray however, however your heart wants to pray. And Romans 8 gives us the assurance that the Holy Spirit interprets it and says, Lord, what he really meant to say is this. What, what she really wants is this. So we can rest in that. But that still doesn't give us an excuse just to never learn how the Lord really wants us to pray. So I'm just encouraging us to bring it up a notch, at least in terms of how we approach these things. But it's just this desire that God not put us in situations where we'd be more inclined to fail. Think of the story of the old Wells Fargo um, stagecoach, where they're interviewing for a position on the stagecoach. This is back in the Old West. And the, the guy who's interviewing, there's three guys interviewing. The first guy comes in, he says, well, how, if you're driving along a canyon, how close do you think you could get to the edge and still be safe? And the guy says, well, I could probably get within a yard. I'd, I'd be okay if I wasn't going too fast. I could get within a yard of the edge. Said thank you, and so he goes out, and the next guy comes in, and I don't know if they the applicants had talked outside or what, but the second guy they ask him, "How close can you get?" And the guy said, "I could get within a foot, and I'd be fine. I know how to handle this stagecoach, and I can drive a train really well." And uh, the uh, is that what you call a bunch of horses? Yeah. A team. I knew it started with a T. I can drive a team well, and I'll be fine. Just a foot from, I'd be fine. Third guy comes in and he's asking the same question. He said, sir, I would stay as far away from the edge as possible. He's the guy that got the job. And you and I, in our spiritual lives, should have that attitude when it comes to temptation. It's not like, well, if I'm only 15 minutes online, I probably won't fall into temptation. It's like, man, I'm staying as far away from those things as possible. We're not praying that God would give us a life free from suffering. 
We're asking him to give us a life free from sinning. And we won't get there, obviously. We won't be perfect. But our main concern should not be that God take away all the discomfort in our lives. Our main concern should be that God not put us in any situation where we would dishonor his name because we're being tempted beyond what we can handle. Though the scriptures promise us that he will never tempt us beyond what we can bear. Just one other comment here, and Mark brought out the passage from Proverbs a couple weeks ago, chapter 30. The prayer of this man who wrote the Proverbs, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. How many of us have asked God not to give us more than we can handle? How many of us have asked God, don't make me too rich? Don't give me too much. Don't let me have so much that I forget who you are and that I become complacent in my spiritual life. It's a good question to ask ourselves. Lead us not into temptation the temptations of affluence and the temptations of poverty. Lord, give me just what I need that I might not dishonor your name. So let me ask you, do we start each day aware of the spiritual dangers that are both outside us and within us? I've been challenged on this as I've prepared this just every morning. Lord, there's going to be things that could come today that would blow my spiritual life out of the water. Keep me. Don't lead me into temptation. And then, we're back to this us again. Lead us not into temptation. How many times do we pray for our brothers and sisters in the same way? Now, if you're a parent and you've got a a child, you're praying that a lot. Lord, protect them, keep them out of situations, and you do your best, and you're trying to figure out wisdom as they get older, how far to let, how to leave the, let them go, and you, you know about that. But I wonder in the body of Christ, how often do we pray for each other? Lord, don't lead us into temptation. How often when there's a material need in a person's life, a, a health issue or a financial issue or a job issue or a house issue, or all those issues that come. How often when we pray for the physical need, which is good, that we did give us this day our daily bread already, but how often do we pray for the spiritual side of that as well? Lord, in this testing time, don't let their faith fail. Don't put them in a situation that's more than they can handle. Be their strength. Be their refuge. I would encourage us as we pray for the needs in the body of Christ that we also not, don't just pray for the physical need that's presented, but we also pray for the spiritual need that's behind that as well. Because sometimes those physical things can really bring a person down to the point where they're tempted to cease their believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'd encourage us for that, not only that compassionate solidarity in the area of material needs, but also in the area of the spiritual needs that we have. But this, lead us not in temptation, is the first half of a a two-half request. And the second half of the request there, deliver us from evil. Now, ESV's translated that deliver us from evil. And if you look in the footnotes, 
Um, there's the alternate reading there is from the evil one, and in most other places in the New Testament where this Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar, but where this Greek syntax is found, it's translated the evil one. And about half of the Bible translations translate it the evil one, and half delivers from evil. Steve was telling me that um, ESV just decided to stick with the traditional thing to help it to not be confusing. I mean, we're used to praying that the Lord's Prayer delivers from evil. And it's not wrong necessarily, but there is a definite article in the grammar. And so it probably is equally justified to pray deliver us from the evil one. And the evil one is a real person. Um, Jesus over and over again talks about his work in, on the earth. And John is very clear in his epistle. He says, we know we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus said it's the evil one who comes and steals the word of the proclamation of the gospel out of the hearts of men and women when they hear so that it doesn't bear fruit. And Paul in the book of Ephesians talks about the flaming darts of the evil one. He is a person. He is the author and perpetrator of evil in the world. And Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Now, we have been delivered from the eternal consequences of his influence through the blood of Jesus Christ that we sung about. If we have put our faith in him, he no longer has power over us. But he's still very, what's the word? I can only think of the French word. Crafty, I guess, is the right word. And so we need to be extremely careful when it comes to, to Satan. Now, there's two extremes to avoid here. We, the one extreme is to deny that he even exists. And if you're a materialist, that makes sense. There's no spiritual things anyway, you think. So there's, there's no such thing as the devil. Or you might think that there's no such thing as a guy in red with horns and a pitchfork. If the devil can get you to think of him in that, that way, then he's perfectly happy because that's just a caricature. But we don't want to deny his existence and influence. But also we don't want to misunderstand the, the power that he has, either by overestimating his influence or underestimating it. And I've been thinking a lot this week about that old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I think Luther's got it right. And in that hymn, um, in terms of overestimating him, Luther says, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. So Lewis says, we're not afraid of him. I mean, the story's told that when he woke up in the middle of the night once and asked who was there, and I don't know what, whether he heard a voice or what, and then he, he thought it was the, the devil, so he says, oh, it's just you, and he went back to sleep. So we tremble not for him. He can't touch us without the Father's permission, so we tremble not for him. So we don't want to overestimate him. But we don't want to underestimate him either. And in another part of this hymn that's been around for over five centuries, Luther says this, Still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. That means make bad stuff happen to us. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. We don't need to be afraid of him, but we need to recognize He's more powerful than you are or I am. He's smarter than you are. He's smarter than I am. He knows human psychology better than you do and better than I do. He's been at it for thousands of years, and he knows all the buttons to push. 
If you're married, your spouse knows what buttons to push because they've been with you long enough and they know how to push your buttons. How much more the one who's been working on the human race for thousands of years, he knows what buttons, buttons to push. He knows where your weaknesses are. He knows them better than you do. So it's not a wonder that Jesus tells his disciples, pray, deliver us from the evil one. He's more powerful than we are. Now, Christ gave us victory, but we still have the free choice to succumb to the temptations that the enemy brings our way. So we're appealing for protection. Now, I want you to notice we, when we prayed for daily bread, the implication is that this prayer that is offered to the Father is being prayed on a daily basis. Just as we pray daily for our material needs, we should be praying daily for spiritual protection, that God would not lead us into temptation and would lead us and would deliver us from the evil one, the enemy of our souls. And we do this because we need the Father's protection. We don't just need a little bit of help in a rough patch to do the right thing. We are at the enemy's mercy if God, our refuge, does not deliver us. Again, back to Luther. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? If you and I try to handle the enemy of our souls in our own strength, we're guaranteeing failure. We're guaranteeing that we'll fall because he is so good at what he does. Proverbs 28, 26 says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. If you're depending on yourself for your spiritual success, you're a fool. Kevin DeYoung, again, in his book on the Lord's Prayer, says this, don't be caught unaware. Whoever has God for his friend, Witsius wrote, will find Satan to be his enemy. You can count on it. The road we have to travel is narrow and the enemies on the path are fierce and cunning. And most of us, if we're honest, live our lives too serious about casual things and too casual about serious things. We fret about clothes and calories. We fuss about diets and home decor. Our whole week can be ruined by a sporting event gone wrong. We're supremely concerned about these relatively unimportant matters and yet we will start each new day as if we were in no spiritual danger as if we had no enemy, and as if we weren't at war with our flesh. May God give us a spiritual perspective on the battle that's being waged for our souls. Jesus knew the importance of praying for protection for others in the body of Christ. He prayed in John 17, just before he gave up his life, he prays to the Father, and he really only asked the Father for three things in that prayer. One was that the, his name, Father's name would be glorified and the Son's name glorified. And the second thing he asked for, he says, I ask that not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This was his prayer for the apostles. Just a little bit earlier, Luke records in chapter 22 of Luke, speaking to Simon, Simon, Satan's demanded to have you, and the you there is plural, y'all, Satan's demanded to have y'all, that he might sift y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular Peter, that you, your faith, may not fail. And when you, Peter, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan's demanded to have you, but I've prayed for you. Back to this us. Deliver us. Are we praying that for each other? Lord, 
don't let him get in. Lord, you know how hard this situation is for this family, this person, how difficult this situation is, how there just doesn't seem to be any hope. Lord, deliver them from the evil one. Don't let the enemy get his claws in them and cause that unbelief to rise up. It's important to be praying for ourselves, deliver us from the evil one, but it's important that we pray that for our brothers and sisters. And I would encourage you, I don't know how broad your field of vision is, but as the Lord enlarges your vision of the church, as you see bigger and bigger how big it is and covers the whole earth, as you listen to the news, and I'm not advising you to do that, it's not necessarily a healthy thing, but as you inform yourself on what's going on around the world, take the time to pray for your brothers and sisters in these situations, in these countries, in these areas of our country, in these times of disaster. Lord, deliver them from the evil one. Don't let their souls go under. Keep them by the power of your name. And we ask the Father to deliver us because we can't deliver ourselves. But thankfully, he can. He has in Christ from the penalty of sin, and he will keep us and protect us from the power of sin as well. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. We don't come to the... And so if you do, it's fine. Ask the Lord to give you strength. That's fine. But I think we need to go deeper and see the Lord not as just our helper, but as actually our refuge. Run to him. Lord, protect me from the evil one because he is the only one who can deliver us. I love Jude's doxology in the book of Jude. Now unto him that's able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Practical applications here. What do we do with this? I've talked about it before, but I'll just bring it home. Just reminding you of two, two main things here, I think, out of verse 11 and verse 13. And it both apply in both situations. The Father, Jesus teaches us to ask. The Father knows what we need. We need to know what we need. We need to think about what we really need. And we need to take those things before the Father and acknowledge time and time and time again that we are a dependent people. We're not an independent people. And we need to look to him for our needs. We need to honor him by consistently taking every need to him. And the Lord Jesus Christ will teach us how to do that. He lived his entire human life totally dependent on the Father. By his Holy Spirit, he dwells in us who have put our faith in him. And he will teach us how to be totally dependent in prayer as we look to the Father for everything. So that complete dependence is one thing. And then that second thing, that compassionate solidarity. May God cultivate that in us. May we be willing to have that cultivated in us. And sometimes it can be overwhelming because the needs are so great. But whatever sphere of influence you have right now, you may only have two or three people that you know really well. Start with that. And, and be one with them in their struggle, both for material needs as well as spiritual protection. When we pray for others' physical needs, let's make sure we also pray for their spiritual welfare as well. Aaron, you can come up. And, uh, you know, society places a premium. Our society especially places a premium on self-determination and personal independence. And we're very proud that no one's going to tell us what to do. 
May God deliver us. Now, it's one thing to step away from an unhealthy human relationship, and I understand that. But what the world has done after identifying extremely unhealthy human relationships has said the solution is to stand on your own, do it your way, be independent, be resourceful, don't trust anybody for anything. And Jesus offers us the best solution, and that is go to him. Look to him for everything. Look to him for everything you need in your daily life, and look to him for everything you need so that you will honor him with a life of faith no matter what the circumstances that come into your life. He's given us everything in his son. If you've not put your faith in him, I would just encourage you to consider what alternative do you have than going to the one who created you, acknowledging that you have tried to do it on your own and you've rebelled against him, and turning to receive the gift that he's given you of his son, Jesus Christ, and letting him be your source, letting him be your strength for everything you need in your life.